Welcome to the Strange and Interesting Podcast, a show about folklore, urban legends, the paranormal, and pretty much anything else that I happen to find strange or interesting. So I have uh, two special guests here today from the Haunted Tales Podcast, Melissa and Robert. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Great, thanks. So before we begin, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourselves and the podcast that you do. Well, I'm Melissa, obviously. I'm the narrator for our podcast. So we tell a different horror story every week uh, that's written by Robert. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. You're the that's, writer. That's pretty much all there is to say about it. Yeah. No. Okay, that's cool. So you actually write the... Because uh, I've listened to several of your episodes, so you actually do the writing for your uh, your stories. Uh, yeah, week after week, deadline after deadline. I don't really have much time for anything else. <laughs> no, so. Trust me, I know the feeling between you know working a full time job and uh, doing my podcasting and my own writing and publishing of games on the side. Trust me, I understand what it's like to not have a lot of free time. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm the one that's more visible i guess but he's the one that does 90 percent of the work so yeah <laughs> so the topic that we're going to be talking about today is some folklore and heraldry from austria so i contacted robert and melissa through a podcasting group on twitter and it's always interesting with podcasting because you can network with people from different parts of the world and different parts of your own country. And usually everyone always likes looking for guests. So, you know, I'm always open to having guests on my show. And I thought that what you did sounded interesting and you brought up the subject of doing folklore from Austria and you, Melissa, you had mentioned that you studied heraldry. And I thought that would also be something interesting to talk about because I think it's one of those things that people see every day, but they're not always sure, or they don't really know much about the, some of the background of the, the symbols that they're seeing. Yeah, it's, it's quite a big topic that uh, can get very complicated and very convoluted, but I think personally, it's very interesting. And basically here in Europe, we have a much longer history of various different coats of arms. Some of those can be traced back to like the 12th century. So they can be very old. The older they are, the derpier the animals look. So <laughs> I think the most common animal to appear in heraldry is a lion or variations of lions. So um, the older and more farther back the lions are the more they look just like a weasel or something <laughs> because the medieval herald heraldists were basically working off like fourth hand descriptions of what a lion actually looks like and there are lots of mythical creatures lots of real life animals lots of weird people and saints and all sorts of objects uh, that are depicted in heraldry and uh, especially with mythical creatures, there are lots of local variations. For example, there's unicorns with two horns and with three horns that are depicted. <laughs> yeah, and that's interesting because usually when we you mention unicorn and you think of uh, just one horn, so seeing two or three horns is not something you would expect. Yeah, and then... There are a couple of well-known ones. For example, the dragon as part of the flag of Wales is probably very well-known. Dragons are also very common in lots of variations, with and without wings, with and without a second head on the end of their tails, with and without talons. There's so many different ones. Some look like a proper dragon. Some look like a lizard with a room temperature IQ, I swear. <laughs> Yeah, there's this, I was talking to uh, someone many years ago, and I don't know if this is true or not, but one of the theories as to why, well, he had mentioned that in a lot of like classical art, where they have depictions of people fighting dragons, like the the known story of St. George and the dragon, because uh, usually, at least me, um, the image I always picture of dragons is there's these huge 
these huge creatures. And part of that just comes from playing Dungeons and Dragons for so long. Well, <laughs> D&D describes them as uh, these huge creatures, so they must be big. But uh, you look at some of the depictions of St. George and the Dragon, the dragon is not even bigger than uh, than the horse he's riding on. So one of the theories is that that might be um, left over from the days of the Roman Empire where they used to capture animals from uh, Africa and other countries and they would bring them to fight in the Colosseums. But some of these crocodiles may have escaped. And of course, depending on where they were, they may not have lasted too long, but that could be that could be one theory why these dragons in these old paintings were not these huge monsters that we see in other forms of of artwork. You know, they're big enough for the dragons and they are big enough for someone to actually ride on where I, I you know, but I thought that was interesting that, you know, in some of these old pictures, they're not much bigger than a horse. Yeah, and on the coats of arms, they're also they're, they're just really weird ones out there, and yeah, it's like that with a lot of the creatures depicted on there. Um, there's also lots of composite creatures, like upper half of a boar, lower half of a lion, and with some quite odd combinations, like goat-headed eagles and horse beavers, wolf eagles, crawfish lions ostrich lions and the always wonderfully just delightful village in North Holland that I can't actually pronounce properly uh, that has a chicken wearing pants (laughs) (laughs) like genuinely a white chicken wearing bright yellow pants I'd love to know the story of why and who but unfortunately that's been lost to time yeah that is that is weird. I'll have to try to look up a picture of that chicken wearing pants. <laughs> so, I'll send you one. Okay. So uh Robert, now you mentioned yeah. that you do a lot of the you write the the stories for uh the the podcast that you do. Now, did you uh, is this just something you do as a hobby or do you uh do a lot of writing for your job? Um I used to work in in call centers until I had a burnout. Then I started writing professionally. Uh, first in, in German, I'm a published author. And so one day my dear wife asked me to make a podcast. And I said, yeah, why not? Can't be too hard, right? <laughs> <laughs> and we are now just, uh, should be about one year. It's our first anniversary in a week from recording now. And it's it's been extremely time intensive, but very much fun. And it's it's really, really cool meeting other people who do podcasts just like yourself. Mm-hmm. By the way, uh I loved your Krampus episode. Oh, thank and you. I really, really, really enjoyed how you tried to pronounce Perchtenlauf. <laughs> because that's probably one of the worst words you can pro- try to pronounce. And it's, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I've uh, had some episodes where I've had to pronounce, try to pronounce a lot of uh, foreign words where I often put the mispronunciation disclaimer in there that I don't know how to pronounce some of these words. So, you know, forgive me if I, I mispronounce something. So you said that you write professionally. Do you write like stories or books or uh, novels? Novels? Uh, novels. And yeah, uh, quite a few of my stories. Uh, Short stories were published in German, in magazines and the like, and anthologies. And yeah, right now it's 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 kind of fun, really. Writing one short story per week doesn't sound like much, but if you do it week after week after week, we don't do breaks here, so we try to to um, get enough stuff out there so we can, as we are now, uh, take a short vacation maybe once or twice a year. But it's yeah, it's it's kind of kind of strange this rhythm. It's a bit of a grind, and he does ninety percent of the work. So <laughs> I'm just a voice and a Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, move to the Austrian folklore. When we look at Austrian folklore as a a body of work, 
are there any common themes or motifs that you see in a lot of the stories? Uh, of course, there's the, the classics about uh, deals with the devil, encounters with the devil, because um, Austria is located right next to the Alps. We have a lot, a lot of uh, folklore about dwarfs, for example, um, changelings, for example, uh, Krampus, as you know, is is has sprung up around here, around Austria. Uh, of course, we have do have our own kind of dragon, the Lindwurm, okay. which is is I don't know. There seem to be many people who already know about the the word Lindwurm. The problem is, it's it's kind of like a, a bit of a dumb, funny looking dragon that really shouldn't be scary in any way, shape, or form. It looks like a snake with tiny wings. <laughs> it, just, it just looks stupidly hilarious in almost any of the depictions. And they're, they're also depicted in various variations. Some have talons. Some are kind of like a basilisk, for example, hatched in weird ways, hatched from a um, yolkless egg, uh, sat on by a toad in the middle of a <laughs> pile of horse poop. It just gets really, really weird. And the one thing about lindworms is um, the only thing they seem to, or the only way you seem to be able to kill them, at least in Austria, is it, because it's always the same story. It's always just some lindworm is hiding in a cave, eating shepherds and a uh, their flock and one day some small farmer will come along, put quick lime into a cow skin and then watch this thing eat it and burn up from the inside. <laughs> and every time this happens, this, this thing will start to thrash around and destroy either a village or destroy some kind of dam and flood the next village over or destroy some kind of mountaintop and uh, uh, stones rolling down the mountain will destroy the next village. So it's always at least one village is dead. The lindworm will burn up and whoever is responsible for killing the lindworm never really gets anything out of it. It's, it's kind of useless killing it. it you, you don't get famous. You don't get riches. You can't even call yourself a dragon killer because it's... Well, it killed itself, kind of. So I, I remember Melissa also mentioned that well, maybe it wasn't the linworm, but there was another one where the there was a guy who went to fight it and he put, uh, he had like blades or spears attached to his armor. Uh, that's the Northern English uh, legend. Uh, he had a spikes on his armor and when the linworm tried to wrap around him and, and strangle him to death, it uh, impaled itself on the spikes and was killed like that. Apparently, Austrians don't like fighting. <laughs> no, we just fill cow skins with quicklime. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> well, you know, when you're fighting a dragon, you do what you need to do, right? You got to get creative because yep. most of the time they are depicted as a little bit bigger than you. But lindworms don't actually spew fire or anything like that. Sometimes they're... Uh, it's told they're poisonous. Most of the time, they're just a big snake in reality. With wings. With wings. With tiny, <laughs> tiny wings. <laughs> so they, they almost kind of look like something out of the How to Train Your Dragon, how the, oh, yeah. Yeah, the different types of uh, dragon shapes they had there. Now, do you happen to know, is there any reason why some of these dragons usually were pictured more as serpents? I know, of course, there's the, in Norse mythology, we have the the Midgard serpent. So I don't know if much of it is uh, inspired by that or not. It could be. Honestly, I don't quite know because for a lot of, especially connecting back to heraldry, they don't quite always know where the first depiction of something was or what it explicitly dates back to. It could be connected to the Northern mythology with like, that one big snake, like uh, Jormungandr, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I think that's how it's pronounced. 
And uh, but there are there are different versions of dragons in heraldry. Some are shaped like serpents that are more so depicted like the lindworm as uh, honestly most of the time the dumbo ones that aren't quite intelligent and the more intelligent and sort of the stereotype of the cunning dragon sitting on his pile of gold tricking the unfortunate adventurers they're more so depicted as having actual limbs and wings and but i'm not entirely certain it's difficult to say really i can understand how when you are taking a look at a lot of ancient or symbols it can be difficult to fully determine when a particular symbol first came into prominence. Um, I remember for a report I did in college, I read a book about uh, that talked about some of the Bronze Age rock carvings um, in Northern Europe. And one of the difficulties in, in interpreting what those the scenes could have represented, you can't really tell which symbols came first. If someone decided to carve over something, you know, when, how long ago they were carved. And we, we just have to kind of go on what we know from other sources to guess what they were trying to represent. So is it like that with heraldry as well, where we, you just have to look at other sources to try to determine what something meant? Um, that depends on a time period. For the medieval time period, we have actually have quite a lot of lists left behind by heralds because heralds historically it was a very uh, respected profession and they basically there's a lot of rules in heraldry to actually create a proper coat of arms there's like pages of rules depending what the coloring what you're actually allowed to put on it um, how this needs to be depicted in which direction the animal needs to look to represent something uh, just a load of stuff and they knew all of that and they uh, wrote all of that down and a coat of arms used to be uh, a family that would get one would also write this down in official documentation now for the really early really old depictions there are a few here and there in old manuscripts or letters for example that were signed or uh, for example a smith would have their coat of arms on the outside of their building, stuff like that. But the older they are, the more unclear sometimes the depictions are. So you find one that looks like it has a ferret on it and you don't know, is it a lion? Is it a panther? Is it a ferret? <laughs> because these illustrations were often inspired by like fourth-hand accounts of what these animals look like. I urge everyone to Google medieval depictions of elephants because they are <laughs> hilarious with like the tusks growing out from the lower jaw and like weirdly shaped and all sorts of like really funny ways because no one had ever seen an elephant that was drawing them in those old books. That's interesting. And uh, there's a podcast I listened to a while ago called Monster Quest where they talked about you know, different monsters and uh, from mythology and folklore. And one of the hosts of that episode it mentioned that there's a theory that the Cyclops may have been inspired by an elephant skull, you know, with the tusks at the bottom and you had this big hole in the middle and they thought that's where there was like one big eye. And, and as he put it, cryptozoology has a very long and storied history with rotting animal carcasses <laughs> because, you know, again, they... It goes into what you were saying that a lot of times the people who are trying to describe these creatures didn't see them firsthand. They were they heard it from someone who heard it from someone who heard it from someone else. True. And I've heard the same thing about dinosaurs and stuff that they later realized that smaller versions of uh, the adult dinosaurs were sort of misclassified as another species or they put horns in really interesting places. <laughs> like uh, the Iguanodon is the one with the thumb horns. It's pretty well known. They only found one of the thumb horns, so they put it on its nose. And they depicted <laughs> it like a rhino walking on all fours and being really stumpy. <laughs> and they've since, of course, they always find new stuff and more preserved fossils. And we only can look at fossils of things that have like bones or cartilage or the rare chance of leaving an impression in the sand or something. 
but you can never be certain how many cool species we've missed just because they didn't have bones that could be preserved. That's a good point. And um, I mean, I'm sure if they've ever found like a bunch of dinosaurs that died in the same location and the bones got scattered, it's not always easy to tell which bone goes with which animal. So you mentioned the lindworm. Uh, what are some other interesting dragon or dragon-like creatures from Austrian folklore? Well, dragon or dragon-like creatures is a bit of a, a problem we have really... It's just the lindworm. It's, it's mostly the lindworm for, for, for cryptids. There's also the Tatzelworm, but that's basically the same thing. So we have, we have the basilisk. Basilisk of Vienna. Yeah. Which is probably one of the more famous kind of stories about a basilisk coming up from a well in Vienna and people pretty much, yeah, turning to stone and dying. I think that was the basilisk, yeah. That's a basilisk, yeah. yeah. Yes. Um most most of the other uh, kind of myths around here are really ba uh, based on, on uh, the devil appearing sometimes together with with uh, his uh, horse which has always uh, three legs which is a kind of a, a, a dumb giveaway I don't know if it's uh, in, in those stories every time some dark rider appears and he has three a uh, three-legged horse you can already say yeah that's the devil which um, that this has seems to have started from an one single myth in in Lower Austria, where they had a few farmers who went deep into a deep and dark forest to get themselves some wood and lost their way. And when they tried to find a way out, they came across a dark rider. Uh, dark, no, sorry, not a rider. Uh, a, a person clad in in dark rags. Pretty much. They could see he had horns, but apparently they didn't care. He gave them some wine, which they, of course, drank because, well, Austrian and farmer is, I don't know, alcoholism seems to be really, really, really a, a cultural cornerstone <laughs> of Austrian <laughs> culture. Yeah. And uh, which led them to, to ask this dark, darkly clad man to get them out of the, those woods. And he wanted a horse to uh, as compensation. So they gave them him one of their horses. He led them out and tried to run away or ride away with their horse, which they didn't find really funny. So they tried to kill him with the excess, missed the devil and hit the horse in the hind leg, cutting it off in one stroke. So from then on, the devil is always uh, riding a three-legged horse. And by the way, the farmers died the ni next night because you don't drink wine from the devil, which they should have known. And it, yeah. yeah. But yeah. No Austrian farmer is going to turn on wine, even if it's from <laughs> <Yeah>. the devil. <laughs> wine or beer. So, the, so you mentioned with the... Uh, there was the encounter with the farmers. Are there any other stories you've heard of uh, people encountering the devil riding a three-legged horse? Or is that just like uh, the main one? That's probably the main one because uh, all the others I found, and there are loads and loads of them, it's uh, always the same. You encounter a dark rider in a dark and stormy night. He wants something from you. If you give it to him, he will give you something in return, but it's never really what you wanted and you mostly end up dying and your, your <laughs> soul dragged down to hell. You sometimes have him uh, off his horse, mostly at, at uh, carnival times, where he likes to mingle between normal people. And if you're too drunk and too excited about dancing around, he will drag you along and break your neck at the first uh, crow of the cock. Cockerel? <laughs> cockerel? Yeah. Uh, and drag you down to hell again. And it's it's always, it's uh, just variations. Uh, depending on where they're from, 
he's he's either really larger than you are or he could be smaller nearly dwarf like in in some parts of the the more mountainous regions it it's really interesting it's 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 kind of like a single story that has been colored by wherever it popped up and that's mostly why we have i don't know 200 different myths about the devil and they all mostly read like one and the same it is always uh interesting to look at how different regions and different people take you know will sometimes put their own regional twists on different stories yeah it's the same thing with um changelings which uh if I'm correct, it's in, in Ireland, it's mostly a fae stuff where fairies will take away your child. In Austria, it's more like uh, dwarfs again. It's, it's, uh, the, the, it's not called a changeling, it's called a Wechselbalg, uh, a changing child. And the, whatever takes your child will leave... Uh, some kind of child in, in its dad in your home. And the description of them sounds mostly like uh, children with uh, dwarfism. They have a bigger head compared to the body and uh, stubby uh, legs. And it's, it's, I don't know, it seems kind of problematic talking about something like that by now. Because it, it might have been just a, an excuse for parents back then when they had a child with a, a visible deformation uh, to be able to say, yeah, it got changed up and then it suddenly died of exposure or something. Uh, because that uh, folklore strictly tells you not to harm the changeling. If you get one of them, you should boil up a giant pot of water and then pretend to throw the changeling into the water. And if it's uh, if you do that, then the, the thing that had, has taken your child will bring your child back to save the changeling. If you accidentally do throw the changeling into the boiling water, then you can pretty much uh, kiss your real child goodbye because the <laughs> changeling, uh, that the, the child stealer will kill your ch uh, child because it doesn't like uh, the changeling being harmed. Now, are there any stories explaining why fairies were believed to take human children and leave a changeling in its place? I don't know about the, the Irish myth mythology. Mythology In Austria, no. It's, it's uh, pretty much uh, just to be I don't know. Uh, it's cruel. a joke. It's almost. a cruel yeah. joke, <laughs> yeah. mostly. Because, no, they, it's it's not like they, they, they don't harm your child. They will take care of your child as well as you do of the changeling. But uh, it's never, uh, I don't know, it, it's not for work purposes or magic or, or because they want to uh, get some kind of thing out of a human child. It's really just... I don't know, being being cruel to some unex uh, some some parents, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And I'll mention again, PSA, do not actually boil the changeling. Because <laughs> <laughs> I because you mentioned a little bit of Irish and I I remember reading one story, Tam uh, it's called The Ballad of Tam Lynn, where at least it brought to mind uh this that story where at least the version I heard the story goes there was a woman named Janet who was walking in the woods near her home and she met a handsome young man who introduced himself as Tam Lynn. And they started to form a romantic relationship, but then she noticed uh, he started to get more uh, depressed and started to get sad. And he explained that he was taken from his family by the fairies. And when he turned a certain age, I, I forgot what age it was, but uh, he was to be sacrificed to the powers of darkness. And the only he told them the only way that he could be saved is if someone held on to him for uh, a total of 21 heartbeats. So he told Janet where they would be. So she goes out in the woods and she hides and then she sees this 
this caravan of fairies come by with Tamlin in the center. So she goes up and uh, hugs him. And while uh, she's hugging him, the fairies use their magic to turn him into like a, a red hot metal statue, a block of ice, a, a large snake, a large bat, all sorts of unpleasant things, hoping that, you know, she would let go. But they manage to, she manages to hold on to him for those 21 heartbeats. And then the fairies all scream and disappear. And, you know, as the stories usually go, they live happily ever after. So when you mention them stealing the children, I'm like, okay, is it something like that where uh, fairies would steal kids to sacrifice? But doesn't seem like that's the case. Uh, no. And um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really, really, really strange because you have to uh, watch out uh, some of the uh, words to use, some of the things to use. It's it's really a mixture of, of its own thing in the Wechselbalg or the Changeling and the dwarves that seem to sometime come down from the mountains and, and have a bit of fun. They can steal your child as a prank, but they, but they mostly will bring them back alive. And um, because it, it's, it's never really, really, really uh, fleshed out what happens to the child uh, stolen by a, a, a changed up with a changeling. Uh, at least I couldn't find it. And I spent far too much time reading about changelings for my liking. <laughs> so you also mentioned dwarves also play a role in uh, Austrian folklore. And now, of course, as a dungeon, Dungeons and Dragons player and, you know, having read Lord of the Rings as a child, uh, you know, I I know we usually picture them as being these short race of people who live underground, and of course, a lot of the stories say that they're really good at making things, uh, whether it's weapons or like in uh, Norse mythology. There's a, lots of stories about dwarves who create magic items for the gods. How much of that also appears in Austrian mythology? Do they follow a lot of the same characteristics? Kind of, mostly, yeah. Dwarves are pretty much the same everywhere. It's quite funny. But um, yeah, they're small in stature. There's different descriptions, sometimes very beardy, as they tend to always be. Um, but most of the time, Austria is very mountainous in a lot of regions. So that's where the dwarves supposedly live. And they come down from the mountain, often during things like a snowstorm. And they request aid or they request a place to spend the night, etc. Now, the stories go two ways. If the humans behave honorably and they give the dwarf a place to rest and something to eat, then they will be rewarded greatly, either with riches or with good luck or with, you know, something positive. Yeah, if you're an asshole and drive them off... <laughs> or hunt and catch the dwarf, then those stories always end with a landslide <laughs> or something similar. So the whole village gets killed for the sins of a single arrogant POS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, are there any stories that uh, you've heard about dwarves? Or are there any like really well-known ones? Um, not really well-known I mean, it depends. Practically every single uh, mine in Austria has at least one story about how it got uh, found out. And it's mostly about dwarves because someone will help some dwarf and the dwarf will show him uh, where they can find uh, iron ore is mostly copper sometimes. Silver in, in very, very, very rare occasions. And it's so this, the, those uh, miners seem to um, appear many, many times in those those uh, dwarf myths. Because uh, no, that but there's there's not really one that really sticks out. It's the same in the Erzberg, in which that which is translatable to the Ore Mountain in Styria. And the same in, in uh, Tyrol, where we are right now. There are some myths, again, pretty much the same myth about uh, someone helping a dwarf and a dwarf showing them the way to a mine. 
Yeah, there are a lot of these, a lot of Austrian folklore is just so regional, but it's kind of the same thing. So it's not like one big story that everyone knows. They're also most of the time not interesting or long enough to be turned into a movie <laughs> for people <laughs> to recognize. So yeah, um, with the dwarf stories, doesn't haven't encountered any story about like an individual dwarf of renown or anything like that. It's just these small local tales that every mine is basically discovered by a dwarf. Out here, one of the types of mythological creatures that we've talked about are uh, Tommy knockers. And I think they may have originated in England, but the, or at least there's something similar. Um, They might call them something different over there, but these creatures that inhabit mines. And if, you're nice to them, then, you know, they would sometimes show you where like an ore of metal was, or they might warn you of danger. I used to work at a planetarium and an earth science museum. And one of the uh, guys I worked with in the, the earth science museum, he had ancestors who worked in some of the mines of Northern Michigan and you know they told them some of these stories and one of the the superstitions is they used to uh, have these things called pasties where it's you know a pastry crust that stuff with like meat and potatoes and other fillings and the tradition was that you would always hold it by one corner and you would not eat that corner now of course usually it's because you're you didn't always have time or the facility where you could go wash your hands before you eat so usually that hand was like full of dirt and uh, debris, but what you would, they would do is they would leave that piece of that uneaten piece of the pasty in the mine because it was believed it was a, an offering for these, um, these creatures that lived in the mine and that they would appreciate it. And they might warn you of danger or, you know, maybe lead you to, uh, give you a hint on where you can find, uh, you know, an ore of metal. So I don't know if there was anything like that in, uh, over in Europe as well. Um, at least not really in Austria. Again, um, those uh, I don't know uh, mine collapses and something like that are mostly put on either dwarfs that were wronged or the devil seems to appear sometimes to to kill a few miners on the way, <laughs> roll down a big stone. Honestly, another PSA. Be nice to mythological creatures. It might pay off or at least keep you from getting buried on the landslide or boiled alive. <laughs> yep. Okay. Yeah. The, the reason I brought that up is because I, I know a lot. He was telling me how a lot of the people who used to mine in the upper peninsula of Michigan um, came from, they brought in miners from, I'm wanting to say Cornwall. It was somewhere in, it was somewhere in the United Kingdom. Because these guys had experience uh, mining in this type of terrain, and they were experienced using doing these really deep mines. And you know, this was back in like the eighteen hundreds, you know, early nineteen hundreds, back before we had a lot of the technology we did today. So you know, so they brought some of their traditions over with them. I think that that the problem there is with Austria; it's uh, such an isolated place, mostly. So you didn't really have an, an influx of different cultures, especially up on the, on, in mountain towns and stuff like that. You had a very, very isolated group of people. And you, it still is like that sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's just with a lot of the villages and stuff where all of these legends and myths come from, they're basically groups of like 800 people stuck up on a mountain the entire year. Who can't come down in winter because there's too much snow. It's always these myths are just very rural in that regard. And we're completely landlocked, so there's no sea travel that could have brought stories. I guess there's probably a few things that have spilled over from sort of the ancient Romans or something, because there are trade routes uh going across Austria. There's actually one going right through the village where I am right now. But yeah, there's not really that much of an influx, especially in these older myths and tales from like the medieval period and before that. Another thing you mentioned early on were witches, and that's a type of uh, character that we see appear in folklore and mythology 
all across the world. So a lot of times in uh, folklore, witches are portrayed as being uh, women who've uh, sold their souls to the devil and they're often blamed for everything from someone's cattle dying to a bad harvest to a, a bad storm. In Austrian folklore, did witches have that same bad reputation or was it different? I mean, could they, because it seems like with a lot of uh, supernatural creatures in Austrian mythology, they can be harmful or helpful depending on how you treat them. Is it like that with witches or are they also usually viewed in a negative manner? Um, it's mostly negative because you, you can't, it's, it's, um, the, Practically the same thing as if you're dealing with the devil himself, because you can get stuff from a witch, but it will bite you in the behind later. Um, mostly witches are, are uh, responsible for bad weather. It's and there's this one story about a witch called Barbara, where we had a really bad hailstorm with uh, hail as big as a man's fist and shaped like skulls and um, witches' hair embedded in it. And uh, the people around were so incensed about it, they uh, picked up two tramps that were walking the country countryside and tortured them uh, until they... they uh, confess to knowing the witch Barbara and breaking into churches and doing some sacrilegious stuff to whatever was inside. And yeah, it's, it's mostly really that kind of, kind of really effed up uh, stuff about where, where people, if they, they really didn't like the weather, they had to find someone responsible the problem was mostly uh, you couldn't really find a witch. You there's there's practically no real story about uh, really dragging a witch somewhere and and burning her alive. It's mostly people that uh, went under her spell, because witches in Austrian mythology mostly live in caves and uh, ride with the storm on their brooms or, or whatever they have, and so that they're pretty much untouchable. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd have to say if I ever we ever had a hailstorm and I ever found like a piece of hail the size of my fist shaped like a skull, I'm totally saving that thing. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> Probably would the be... freezer right away. Yeah, that might maybe that might bring some bad luck later on, but come <laughs> on, I mean. <laughs> there's there's a lot of these old legends that if you read them out dramatically, it's it's absolutely hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> because there's often these these sort of over dramatized depictions exactly like that. Like as we said with the devil, the horse will be like the biggest, darkest, most fear-inducing horse you have ever seen with its terrible hooves and terrible legs and terrible ears. Just just completely like that. And it's it's so it's so hilarious sometimes to read it. I I also absolutely love the that's one of the really strange kind of myth and it seems to crop up uh, everywhere around Austria about uh, finding some kind of small lizard or small snake with a crown on its head hmm. and the, the the story is always the same you have some farmer and um down in their cellar their their, their milk uh starts to dwindle more and more each day. And then uh, they see a lizard with a crown on its head. It's drinking from the milk and they kill the lizard and the farmer wastes away and uh, dies impoverished and, and lonely. And it's the really, it's, it's kind of strange because you have those, those small creatures with golden crowns on their head. And the first instinct of Austrian farmers is kill it. <laughs> just kill it like that's the, it's so cute imagine like a little salamander sipping out of your milk with like a tiny crown on its head like i'm picking that up and putting it in a box and giving it more of the milk <laughs> <laughs> yeah i have to admit a, a little lizard or snake with a crown on its head would be pretty cute <laughs> so with um 
uh, Robert, with some of your writing that you do and some of the, the stories you've written for your podcast, do you ever draw from Austrian folklore when you're writing your stories? Uh, sometimes. It's kind of interesting, but I, I really have to try to stay away from the the, the more ethereal myths we have around here because I, I don't know it's some of those stories really do sound like someone uh, smoked the wrong stuff or <laughs> ate some really bad bread because you you couldn't you simply couldn't bring something like that uh, in a podcast you have <laughs> really really cruel torturous uh, brutally absolutely uh, it's it's torture porn sometimes so you can get inspired by this, but but you really have to try to tone it down a little bit sometimes. Honestly, sometimes I wonder what's the percentage of these stories that have been caused by severe food poisoning or ergot poisoning was actually quite common back in the day. And that gives you like really crazy hallucinations, apparently. And or or just bad dreams or something like that, because I can't imagine like someone just walking along and walking through the forest and suddenly seeing the three-legged horse and making up that legend about it. Um, the three-legged horse is not the weirdest ones. <laughs> <laughs> you have some one one of the myths uh, I. I couldn't bring up because it's it's very very long. It's about a a strange kind of saint that races around on a on a horse, and if you annoy him, he takes out a flaming whip, and he will uh, hit out your eye. I mean, it's it's completely off the charts. It's absolutely <laughs> insane. It's specifically one eye. <laughs> So he's got to have really good aim to take out just one eye with a flaming whip. But yeah. While racing around your hall. While horse, racing around uh, on a horse. He won't a stop. He just. A saint racing around on a horse with a flaming whip. That has to be the most metal thing I've heard. So uh, this oh, week. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Believe me, I'm not going to dive into saints, but there's, there's some real weirdos in there and some real weird first names coming or main names coming from that and the guy with the flaming whip is, is yeah pretty much up there there's a lot of strange local just weirdness going on <laughs> back especially if you look into like the really medieval ones that like the catholic church no longer really acknowledges is there a specific story from austrian folklore that uh that you that you really love or do you have like a favorite Myth, myth or or legend? Uh, absolutely, I, I oh, it's it's just a, a small little myth, but it, it's from uh, Salzburg. It's called uh, the the city where it's from. Uh, if you ever get bitten by a snake, you have just entered a race with the snake to the next body of water. The first one who reaches water will survive; the other one will die. So it's, which is probably the, one of the dumbest things I've ever heard, because why just who, who ever thought it would be possible for the snake to die if it bit you? <laughs> I mean, we don't really have a lot of Austria. Isn't, we're not Australia. We're all Austria. So we're not filled with poisonous snakes. <laughs> There's like once. One, one, but it's not really deadly poison. It can kill you if you're weak of your immune system or if you're a child. Mm -hmm. But we, Austrian forests aren't filled with giant poisonous snakes. So <laughs> I think my favorite is probably, you know, do not boil the changeling. <laughs> because it just sounds so weird to me. Pretend to boil the changeling, but pretend it must be. Well, I would like to thank the two of you for joining us today. And before uh, we end the episode, uh, the where can people find uh, Haunted Tales podcast if they want to follow you on social media? And then, Robert, if there's any place that people can look up your writings, uh, where can they find that? 
Well, the podcast is available, well, pretty much on all platforms, Spotify, Amazon Music, uh, Apple Podcasts, just wherever you usually find podcasts. Uh, we, our Twitter is at Haunted Tales Pod, which is probably where we are most active. So if you want to contact us, that's where you'll get the fastest reply. And on Instagram, we're at Haunted Tales Podcast. Um, yeah, that's basically it for mm-hmm. social media. We publish a new episode every Sunday. And I don't know um, about my writing. It's uh, the really published stuff beside the podcast is, is all in German. So it might not really be that interesting to most people. Uh and I'm 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 so focused on a on focused on a podcast right now. I'd really much rather people just listen to our stories. And okay. uh, we will bring out a, a novel in the near future. Uh, it is in the works right now, so there there might be something we can we can say once we've hit our first year milestone. So that's yeah, that's pretty much it. Okay, well, um, well, Melissa and Robert, I'd like to thank you for uh, joining us today. And, you know, certainly everyone out there, uh, you know, take a listen to the Haunted Tales podcast if you have a chance. And until next time, everyone, stay strange and stay interesting. You have been listening to a presentation of Point of Insanity Game Studio. Visit us on the web at POIGamestudio.com. Follow us on Twitter at POIGamestudio. Look us up on Facebook and email us at POIGamestudio at gmail.com. <laughs>